Hey there, Zeus. This is Eniosh. Hey, Eniosh, this is Stephen. Stephen, why are you Zeus? There were lots of gods in this week's reading, and, you know, lots being two, and they both started with an A. So, <laughs> Z. Oh, perfect. Yeah. yeah. That works. Okay. It's it's low effort, but applicable. Yeah. Well, this is, it makes sense if you understand decision theory, or I miss Yud for short. Stephen, what is this thing? This is our podcast where we discuss Kelsey Palmer and... Eliezer Yudkowsky's Glowfic called It Makes Sense If You Understand Decision Theory. Uh, the Glowfic is called Plane Crash, and her Fuck. name is Kelsey Piper. <laughs> well, you know, third time's the charm, it stays in. Sorry. Cool. Yes, we did, it is. We did so good, you should throw us money on, on Patreon. <laughs> Maybe if we have more money, we will suck less. That's how these things work, right? We'll get speaking lessons for Steven. Do those exist? Uh, I'm sure they exist. There are definitely speech therapy lessons, and yeah. I definitely probably am on the cusp of needing it. Really? I wouldn't think so. I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like I could stammer less and get my actual thoughts out better. I think that applies to like 99% of humans, though. Well, we'll let the audience decide. Do I sound okay. more scrambled and less coherent than the average person? Maybe that's a brain problem, not a speech problem. We will let our audience answer. <laughs> and they got to judge against the average person, not the average professional podcast slash news speaker person. Fair enough. Before we jump into things, we have a couple bits of feedback from the Discord. The first is from Luna Warrior, and this was echoed by a couple other people too, but Luna Warrior was the closest one to my cursor when I decided to add this to the show notes. The sun moves across the sky, but not down in it, implies he is near the North or South Pole, well before it implies that he is on a flat planet. Ah, and closure. Also, I guess... <laughs> there we go i feel i feel great about that answer and i like it a lot and that's a great that's where i'd put a world wound if i was smashing in from another dimension i guess if you have a choice in the matter i i didn't think those things were generally uh a thing you thought about it's, beforehand you just kind of smash and it lands wherever it's it does. where the magnetic fields and thus the magical fields are ah. at, the, at their there i'm sure there's a word for that but if you look at the cool pictures of earth's magnetic fields that's where like it's all kind of circling back in is at the poles yeah yeah and if you had to choose, like, a shelling point for where to meet up with all your demon friends, it'd be at one of the two poles, probably, right? Meet us at the top of the sphere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then Rurok says, regarding the blocking off of history, I assume that the social convention in Dothalon is to not pass down historical events, except for keepers, I think, who can choose to reveal that knowledge on a case-by-case -case basis. The idea perhaps being that reverence remembrance is reserved for knowledge, not specific people. And to prevent grudges, cults, nationalism, and probably other things. Uh, someone else had a similar comment where it might prevent things like the Israeli-Palestine 2,000 years of bad blood. Uh, if there, there isn't a history of that thing. I like the idea. Do you think that if the baseline um, like population involved in, say, the Israel-Palestine conflict operated like uh, Keltham, that this would last 2,000 years? I think if the baseline person anywhere operated like Keltham, this would last maybe 2,000 minutes that's at most. That's tops, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's just because that's how long it takes to like write everything down in a contract. So <laughs> yeah. uh, I I like the idea, but I don't think that it's to – like I think that Dalthalon is too intellectually sophisticated for like nationalism and stuff, especially if they don't have governments, right? Yeah. Yep. But I like the idea. You know, it it could be – then I guess I'd want a better reason then just to keep them from doing that. Maybe they found themselves prone to doing that anyway, like the, you know, bullshit nationalism or whatever, like mm. this, you know, we're from this continent, we, you know, we're all one world government, but our continent's better, like just because that's programmed into, into monkeys. And 
they found that this worked. But I like some magic yeah, cataclysm more. So Th- those are always more fun. But eh, this is this is also cool. Yeah. Now that we have covered that, let us get into the content of the podcast. Yes, sounds good. Keltham was he's got a minute alone, so he's kind of rehearsing all the gods. And I'll be honest, a lot of the names go in one eye and out the other. You know, like Avadon and as as Modeus. Until they become repeat characters, it's going to be hard for me to remember. But I, you know, I, I kind of have the same problem with humans. Oh, 100%. I met yeah. a new neighbor today. I am pretty sure I won't remember his name next time I see him. Right. But Until it becomes like an actual character in your life. It's just too many humans. <laughs> exactly. I moved recently and I'm trying to make friends with the neighbors because I lived at my last place for four years and knew exactly one neighbor's name. Anyway, Nor Gorber, god of violating regulations and killing people for money. <laughs> and whom Carissa swore was in the class, all of whose members sucked. And it sounds like they suck. She's certainly... Done a good job of painting that picture, yeah. I mean, if that's really what this god's all about, you know, mm-hmm. you, you need a Dark Brotherhood god, you know, like your Assassin's Guild, right? Yeah, but but you still acknowledge that they suck. Oh, they, they suck. But you know who is awesome is Callistria, the god of women who want to leave their husbands, get abortions, and get revenge. Yeah. She, she's the patron saint of female empowerment. I also loved her immediately. I It was interesting how Kelton kept thinking, what the fuck? Why doesn't she help? husbands get revenge too or help husbands leave their wives and i thought that was a really cool world building insight because it means basically that they have at least in terms of uh marriage equality full sexual equality over on dathalon it'd be hard to see how they wouldn't i'm and I, i'm gonna assume that they kind of just do most things optimally so like at least as optimally as as they think is optimal yeah <laughs> boy that came out wrong no no i, I see what you mean i mean they're, they're at least they're doing better than we are and so in, I'm sure they're doing better than us in many metrics in many yes. metrics. Yeah. yeah. You know, one that they might not be, this is actually a good case. You'll have to check my reading comprehension on this. So they, mm. they did that experiment on Keltham. I guess they did this a lot of kids where, you know, you're on a rush to an appointment and then there's somebody crying in the hallway. In this case, he was a kid and it was like an injured child or whatever. Yeah. Um, someone, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Lightly injured. Yep. Yeah. But in, in real life, like surprisingly few people stopped. It was like to give a lecture or something. Like to, they're, uh, he was going to a party. Oh, I know, but like in, in the real experiment, they're like they're run, they're oh. they're rushing to give a talk that they're told. Oh, it's five. It's before the start time that you thought. You've got to hurry. Okay. And almost nobody stopped. Um, huh. Okay. Maybe this is this is one of those old experiments. Maybe it doesn't replicate just like that. But right. Uh, this is based on that. So yeah, he's a he's a little kid, and he stops, and then he wants money. Um, mm-hmm. you know, for like what you know, being paid for his services and for the inconvenience, and yeah. uh. Um, what's interesting is that like, that's based, that's not, that's narcissistic and like borderline, you know, uh, antisocial personality disorder here on earth. Huh. Okay. I mean, I, I would think so, but it's hardly unreasonable for society that doesn't have norms like ours. You know, I, I mean, I, I don't know. It, it's, it, it's hard to say it's unreasonable, but it's very much that kind of thing where I would say you're not wrong. You're just an asshole kind of thing. <laughs> and I think that is. That's sort of what we want in our society. But on the other hand, if the only way to increase the uh, incidence of people stopping to help people uh, when they're in a rush to get to a lecture or a party is by having those uh, payments, promise of payment implied, then I would uh, prefer that. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, like a handful of times less now since I get out a lot less and I'm in my advanced age. But, uh, I, you know, if there's a car stuck over on the highway or whatever on the side of the road. Easier not in Denver when it was in Fort Collins. I'd get out and help them push to the nearest gas station or where they're trying to go, right? Um, That's cool. What I wouldn't do is then at the end of that, demand 20 bucks. Yeah. Right? Like, I might negotiate with them first, and I still feel like that's a dick move because, like, I'm volunteering to stop, right? 
Yeah. yeah. But, but that said, um, I thought that he failed because he demanded money, but doesn't it oh. say later that he failed because he stopped? No, no, he failed because he demanded money. And they were like, well, I guess it's cool that you stopped and helped the guy. But since uh, we want people just to do it all out of altruism, you you don't. Well, he also says he doesn't know the results yet, but he strongly suspects that uh, they're going to tell him you do not get support because you're the kind of person who would ask for money when helping someone. OK, I I think I missed that. Because he was talking when he was giving his like long thought about how cool his Keltham verse would be and how it's different from Dothalan. Mm-hmm. I thought that one thing that he emphasized about Keltham verse was that it wouldn't uh, penalize people who stopped to help. It wouldn't penalize people who asked for payment after stopping to help. Oh, then I'm going to go ahead and say he that he feels that it's unfair that he was penalized for that. Yeah, then I'm going to go ahead and say that Dothalan is more advanced than I thought they were because I thought I thought they penalized him for stopping. Oh, I'm glad we were able to clear that up. Yes. Gosh, I don't remember the context for this right now, uh, so I'll just drop it in here. He says that knowing logical decision theory might make it a little too easy to call out to the gods. And that's why people here aren't being taught the pure forms of the algorithm. Left to struggle along with intuitive honor, the algorithm's fragmentary emotional shards. And I am now like super hyped for hearing about this algorithm and how it makes things so much easier that you can even exploit the gods uh, too easily if you know it. And just the fact that he refers to things like honor as the fragmentary emotional shards of the algorithm just makes it, (laughs) it makes me excited. It makes it sound mystical. It makes it sound like here's the thing evolution is trying to gesture at as well as it can in its fucked up, stupid, shitty evolutionary way, but we can do better. And uh, yeah, this is one of the reasons I'm reading. The other reason, of course, being the great enjoyment of reading. I should say this at the top that I enjoyed this week's reading a lot more. I think you're, and I mentioned this last week, but your, um, your enthusiasm gave me new energy for the story. Cause I was not, I was, I was put off by the first reading mm. and, uh, you put me back on and I enjoyed this now that I'm, I'm looking at it with a different lens. So, uh, cool. and I, just to clarify, I did skim, uh, you're right. So the, the in, in his world, there would just be a public fund to repay people for doing nice things. Yeah. And I guess Dothalon doesn't lean that way. They think that you should just do them, which is nice, but you know, who might do them, you know, what might make people do them more? If they'd got 10 bucks for it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I like the warm fuzzies. That That's a good motivation. But like, you know, it's your time mm-hmm. and uh, I, I can dig it. And Dothalon, you're kind of taxed for helping by the, the, the tax occurs randomly by whoever happens to be near the, the thing, right? <laughs> it, it, it's like the person walking by the drowning child across all of society. It, it is it evens out, but it, it is localized on whoever happens to be closest at the time. And. I guess society just kind of assumes, you know, it all evens out over the course of one's entire lifetime. We're all going to be called on roughly about the same amount of times to pay roughly the same amount of costs to keep society functioning well. But uh, Keltham is like, you know, it'd be better if we just actually completely smooth that out, make everyone pay into a single fund the same amount, and then uh, re- re- and then compensate people who do help those things out. So it doesn't have to be evened out across a lifetime. It's just evened out on a day-to-day basis. You know, the person who walks past the drowning ch- the drowning child in the pond is a, is basically a psychopath. But wouldn't it be nice if they were comped for their expensive shoes? Right? So Cuz it, you, it you, would. You do it anyway. And mm-hmm. then it's just kind of like, you know, you honestly fill out on your taxes like sacrifice shoes for a child and <laughs> they send you, yep. you know, a receipt for new shoes. So Yeah. I love it. I I I can dig it. 
I think that that's, that's, I'll, I'll have to give some longer thought as to whether or not, like I would love to live in that world, but I love the idea of it. Yeah. It, it is an interesting person that would prefer things that way. Right. 100%. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, the thing is, okay, now going into that a little bit further, uh, the thing is Keltham just seems so overly obsessed on the actual numbers of, of financial transactions because he, he wants, he would prefer a number go up like money, uh, when he does something good and then he can spend that number on things like public goods so he can get things like, uh, attractive sexual partners. Whereas in the real world, it's much more fuzzy and vibes based where you do get rewarded for saving the child, but you get rewarded by other people being like, Oh shit, that guy saved the child. He's a badass. I kind of want to fuck him a little more now, you know? So you, you get the same end result, but in a less quantifiable way. Yeah, and you know, often people don't see you do the nice thing. Right. And that's why you got to have friends who like talk you up whenever you got you. Like, do you know this badass right here saved a kid a week ago? <laughs> that that might help too. But I think part of it is like the intrinsic reward, and I think that's what maybe turned off the Dothalanians is that you know what the the internal reward of just helping people isn't good enough. You also want money, and it's like, look, mm. I love the internal reward, but money's nice. Like you said, it's it's a tax on me for having to be there. Yeah. I don't know. It might be an amazing advantage that you happen to be there and now you can forever get slightly more sexual partners by, by I don't know, even busting out a picture of the kid. Be like, look at this kid. Isn't he adorable? He'd be dead if I didn't save him from drowning. That sounds a tad gauche here on Earth, but maybe in Keltenverse that would, uh, that <laughs> would land. That's true. I guess you wouldn't say it exactly like that. You would have a picture of the kid. You would talk about how you still keep in touch. And then when they ask how you meet, you're like, oh, well, you know, he was about to drown to death and I saved him. Well, I, so, I guess it seems like a lot more work than just getting reimbursed for your shoes. I'm a bit of a hero, you see. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on. Thanks, thanks for indulging um, me on that because I, I, I was hung up on not hung up, but I was thinking about that a lot, and I happened yeah. to misread it, so now I'm just reprocessing what I believed about it. So, hey, no worries. Uh, we find out that there is mind fuckery in this setting that uh, not only is she mind reading him, but uh, Carissa thinks they'll, by they'll being her supervisors, head priests, whatever, probably mind read her for it later. But by then she can have shaped it to be a little bit more generous, which awesome. I mean, obviously, if there is mind fuckery in your setting, that is a thing you're going to be thinking about a lot. And uh, I get the feeling it's going to be a big part of the action going forward. What I like about it is that I don't think Keldham has had any thoughts that he'd be like, oh, shit, you guys can read my thoughts. Um, mm. Like, I don't, think, I don't think he's embarrassed yet of anything or wanting to hide anything he's thought of yet. Oh, that's a good point. However, at some point, he'll have some really cool idea for making money. He's like, I'm not going to let the first jackass who can read my mind steal that idea from me. Uh, huh. So where there's mind fuckery, there's counter mind fuckery. And I suspect he'll think of something like the mind breaking meme, uh, meme that June had. I mean, if nothing else, we already know that Carissa can have shaped her memories a little bit to be a little more generous. So maybe there's something more along. Maybe he can refine those techniques to be more better. Totally. I think that refining a memory is different because she was reading his active thoughts. Mm -hmm. And so that that's going to be, you know, you have to like safeguard against that while doing it. Lots of mm -hmm. fantasies handle that in different ways. But I'm really curious to see what he comes up with because it's not going to just be like, OK, picture a rock. Um, yeah. which is, you know, I liked that it was in the, uh, inheritance cycle, the Aragon books, but, oh, okay. uh, you know, picture a picture, a physical barrier and just keep that in the yeah. forefront of your mind. That's, yeah. that's cool. But that's not interesting. You know, what's gonna be interesting right. is he, you know, whoever reads his mind is going to be a drooling mess after. So, 
<laughs> awesome. Just think of lots of heretical thoughts all the time and scare them away. You can't read his mind without losing your clerichood because you start questioning your own faith. It's going to be like, you know, talking to the dangerous atheist down the street. Uh, yes, totally. Speaking of Keltham and his weird, I don't want to see utility function, although <laughs> it does seem the most appropriate thing to refer to Keltham's moral intuitions. Uh, he went to talk to your confessor about it, and the confessor formally predicted that uh, even if he had his hundred. 44 children, he still would end up not feeling happy. Unless maybe he got to know a few of his children much better. This made me feel very warm. Like, it made me feel really warm towards the confessor. First of all, those confessors are the best. And it also suggests that producing public goods, because the elite desirable women hang out with the elite male public goods producers to mutually prove their respective eliteness, it suggests that producing public goods is one of the most high-status thing a Dothalani can do, which puts a lot of Keltham's earlier statements from our previous reading in a much better light. You know, makes him look better, makes Dothalan obviously look a lot better, because that would be a great way to incentivize such uh, public goods producings. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I... I was stoked when I saw the word confessor, too. I feel like I'm going to love them as much as I did in Three Worlds Collide. Yeah. And I think the confessor is right. I mean, you know, it, uh, Keldon's plan of like, well, I'll just make money. And isn't there like a shorthand for that? Um, like from that meme, like, what is it? Make money, fuck bitches or something. <laughs> I'm unfamiliar with that particular meme. It's like, but... a, it's like a Renaissance painting. I'll have to find the original. Cause all I remember is like, uh, um, like twists on it where it was, you know, like, uh, fornicate with women, acquire currency or something. But nice. like that, that, that's not a, that's not a real goal. You know, that's like saying I want a big house with a, with a swimming pool and then I'll be happy. And it's like, that's not, that's not where happiness is. Mm-hmm. You know, it not to, we, we don't have time to make this sound any less, uh, whatever mystic mysticism and, and whatever, but happiness comes from within, man. Yeah. Yeah. And, he, and he's putting yeah. it without. So, and he even like, seems to realize that he he says you know he shrugs and says maybe he'll get to know some kids better but he says he still can't think of anything with higher expected value to him and you know that's just that's the way he feels and he feels how he feels and i i feel i feel for him it's unfortunate when our ambitions are not the things that make us happy and i think that's extremely common among humans that we have all these great ambitions but they aren't the things that make us happy and we find that out long after it's kind of too late I'm excited for him to have like a real ambition here because again, you know, have sex and, and have, have kids is not like, you know, it's not the kind of ambition that I feel like is worthy of, of a Slytherin. Right. Mm. And so, you know, what it is, it's like, Oh, I'm going to reinvent this entire world and save billions of people. You know, he, he, he wasn't an outlier in like a, in a lot of positive directions back on Dothalon, but here he is. And that's the thing, like you want a lot of Slytherins in your society because that makes your society stronger, but the Slytherins aren't happy. It's the Hufflepuffs that are happy. So society always has this, seems to have this trade-off of if you want people to do good things to make society better, it's going to make those people just less happy overall because great ambitions mean you have less time for things like really getting to know your kids and love them and spend a lot of time with them. But if your ambition is save a a billion people and he does then maybe he'll feel good about that but yeah you make a good point you know you got you got to find a good balance yeah. what you do what you do is do lots of kick-ass stuff then retire and do all the things that you know it makes you personally happy i have been trying that and it's actually been working pretty well so far i'll say. We'll see if it holds up <laughs> yeah well no i mean between that and like you know other fiction june's another good example right yeah all right well there's a god of there being potential for good in everyone 
Uh, and he says, it's a stupid thought. He's never going to do it. He's never going to pray to that God and have the God make him good in the way that Dothalan considers people to be good. But he's really tempted. You can feel him being tempted to want to modify to be good. And there keep being flashes where I'm like, oh man, I feel really bad for this guy and I really sympathize with him. And this is one of them because he wants to be valued by his society and he wants to fit in. And I think that is one of the most relatable things. Like all humans want that, right? It's part of our psychology. And I felt maybe it could have been worded slightly better, but it just felt a little more distant than I guess I'm used to the writing, like when I think of Harry Potter, but it still made sense. It's fun because we know that Eliezer can write, you know, Harry Potter. So like we know that he's capable of writing a character that's easier to relate to, Mm -hmm. but he's writing an alien here. And it's, it's fun having to kind of cross that gap and be like, oh, I still can relate to you. Right. Yeah. But it's, it is, I, I feel the same thing. It takes a little bit more work. What I did like though, is that he talked about if he did do this, it would modify him in ways that would be incoherent. It's horrifying self-mutilation for the sake of conformity. And that's also not what Dothalon wants to be when it grows up. Which, uh, mic drop, Keltham takes a hard swing at soul modification. <laughs> and this mega genius is on my side. So. Shit. All right. Boom. I accept your surrender. Yeah, I, 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 I surrender, sir. <laughs> <laughs> because this because this debate went on for five hours in our last podcast. Right. Uh, I guess the um, memeable reply is, ah, well, nevertheless. <laughs> Fair enough. As she's reading his mind. It is said from, I believe this is from the, not inside either one of their points of view, right? This is when the face cast turned to just uh, an upside down globe and it is like just dot alon. It's like the world in general, a disembodied omniscient narrator rather than either of our two people, right? I can't remember. Yes, it was the globe. And you're right. It is upside down. I never noticed. The, yeah, but then it transitions to Carissa. Uh, and it seems like these aren't the thoughts that she was having. It's like, we're getting the third person description of his thoughts. And then we see her reacting to them. It's neat because before we were talking about how there's basically two narration threads mixed together, his and Carissa's. And now we have at least one more where it's sort of a disembodied, just the world is telling you this. Yeah, I think we saw it in the first reading, but it was less. Okay. The specific thing I pulled out where this is happening is it comments on Keltham's thought process. Everything inside his mind has a very trained feeling to it. His moment-to-moment thought motions each feel like a punch that a monk throws after 12 years of experience when he isn't particularly focused on showing off and simply knows what he's doing without thinking about it. When he is sad or upset, Keltham goes into a reflexive motion of letting those parts of himself speak. When he is uncertain and worried and doesn't know what to do next, he weighs probabilities on his uncertainty and knows explicitly that his current worries are causing him to currently be trying to figure out what to do next. This was just the coolest description of what feels like a greatly honed control of your thought process and like doing thinking correctly. I I think the analogy it makes to a monk punching correctly is very well put because I don't know how to fight. And if I did, I just kind of like make a fist and swing it at people and hope it connected. Whereas a trained fighter would know very much what they're doing. And it kind of feels like this really is the way most people think. I know it's the way I think. Make a fist and hope for the best is definitely a great description of a lot of my thoughts. (laughs) Yes. I I wonder if this is like a thing that Eliezer feels sometimes or even often that like he can just think in a ordered way like this and let his emotions express themselves and realize what he's doing when he's thinking 
first of all, I wonder what that would feel like if I could do it. But even more, so I wonder if that would be good. I guess by the time you can do that, you're a different enough person that you think it is good too. But now I'm slightly worried about how that would change me as a human and if I would need to worry about that. Or, or maybe it wouldn't really change me that much at all. And I'm just, you know, worrying, oh, if I get too good at fighting, then I won't have the joy of just randomly flailing at people. Not to sound like I'm trying to put myself, elevate myself to the, you know, the status of Keltham, but I do something equivalent to this when I'm trying to be mindful. You know, it, it's maybe like a monk with a year of experience rather than 12, um, mm-hmm. or maybe, you know, someone who, who's still earlier in their training for sure. But it, it's just a matter of being aware of what you're thinking and how you're feeling. If I'm sad, sometimes it can last for hours or sometimes it lasts for a minute. Like, wait, why am I so, what's going on here? You know, and I've been sad for hours because I've just been ruminating on these same three thoughts over and over. And that's pointless. Yeah. And so I am training those grooves into my brain. And I feel like it definitely helps. Like, you know, if I if I'm angry at whatever nonsense or something, it doesn't take long for me to notice that I'm angry. And then I kind of get to decide, do I want to stay feeling this way or not? Yeah, Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it doesn't like, you know, dissolve it completely. And it's not like a, a perfect fix, but it's. I definitely think it's helped. Yeah, it's just, Can, and this is just elementary mindfulness. I'm not good at this stuff or anything, so. I guess I'd be mostly worried about being able to turn it off because one of the greatest joys for me is just being with other people. And I guess the term nowadays is vibing with them. And I feel like that very much is so a sort of intuitive, feel things out, go with your emotions sort of thing. And if I was having this sort of very efficient mental process, I think I would lose that, that the two mental states are not able to be commingled. I think there's definitely a line or fuzzy barrier where it's like, if I, if I got too good at this, it would be present all the time and I, it would be hard to be in the moment. And yet I've heard from people who are really good at this, that it's actually not hard to do that. So maybe there's like this middle part where, you know, you're good enough to where you're reflexive and you're always self-aware and then you can get past that. But yeah, I, I know what you mean. It's great for, um, emotional, I don't, management is one word for it, but just like, again, not being subbed up or, or terribly bothered by your emotions or, or being at least just aware of them, you know, yeah. you know, so some days, you know, it'd be like whatever four o'clock and it's like, I've been pissed all day. What the hell's going on? I didn't even realize until now. Right. Oh man. Well, I mean, you know, it's what, whatever it is, maybe I just didn't have lunch or something. Right. Um, right. Yeah. But it's like, I, I try to get ahead of those, but yeah, yeah it's again, I'm talking like a, two months into training white belt, looking at this black belt and be like, oh man, yeah, I, I know what he's doing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more like I'm practicing at doing what he does yeah, and I'm much less good at it. It's really interesting that when Carissa is seeing him do this, the way she puts it is that he doesn't have free will. <laughs> that free will is the tendency of the mind to wander away from its goals and for emotions to override thought processes, uh, for the brain to be sticky, burst-driven, impulsive, animalistic, and she says, it's not a correct part of the situation to guess that Keltham doesn't have free will. He's imperfect at the thing he's been trained to do. He's more like someone who was raised from babyhood by lawful outsiders or something. He might have free will, but he's never been around anyone who used it. <laughs> and that, I don't know, like, I, I now that I'm thinking about it, the whole just being around people and trying to be in a flow state and bouncing emotionally off them definitely feels much more of a free association letting your emotions take some of the wheel here and maybe maybe more of a free will thing i don't know do you do you feel like you have less of a free will when you are doing the strong 
optimization thinking? No, I steadfastly disagree. I feel like I have more. Oh, really? Absolutely. I mean, if you're if you're carried away by your emotions and you're, you know, you've been upset for hours or you're you can't quit replaying an argument in your head or whatever, like, oh, where's the free will in that? Yeah, the free will is is if if we're going to use the term is like it's in realizing that you're thinking about it and deciding, do I want to keep having this conversation with myself and then making that choice? Right. Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. I feel like she's got it totally backwards, almost to the point where I think I'll try not to use this phrase too often. I think we're supposed to disagree with her. Um, (laughs) Okay. Because I I think that she's, that she's so, so wrong that I think, I think this can be held up as like, at some point they're gonna have this conversation and he's, and, and, uh, Calvin's going to be, you know, like, what, what are you talking about? That you think that just being pulled around by your desires blindly is freedom. Like that, that's what monkeys do. Um, yeah. So I, I do see what she's saying though. There's something, um, like capricious has a negative connotation, but I mean like this kind of, uh, you know, carefree, just, just go with it. Um, you know, but if you're, if you're just going with the stream, you're not fighting against it or you're not even, you're not even going where you want to in it. You're just going with the flow, Mm -hmm. which sounds sure. sounds pleasant, but you're not going to get to where you want to go that way. Yeah. I guess you just better hope that you want to be wherever the stream's going. I mean, sometimes that is how it be. Totally. Yeah. But it's nice to know that in advance and make the decision to go with the flow. <laughs> that's a good point. Maybe if you never, maybe that's what she's saying. Like he's never been anyone around anyone who just goes with the flow. He's always been in a very goal-directed, lawful society. Like lawful to to the point of the the. He keeps bringing up the the algorithm for making optimal decisions, and I. I'm reminded, especially when she was saying this thing about free will, I was reminded about the uh, the earring that whispers in the most optimal thing you can do in your ear in any situation from Scott Alexander's short story. Do you remember that one? It's been a long time, but that rings a bell. Uh, that's basically the entire thing, that there's this earring that no matter what you're doing, it'll always whisper to your ear what the optimal thing to do is for you, uh, considering your goals and what you want, right? Uh, and people who get the earring tend to just lean on it and their life goes wonderful. They get everything they want. And then afterwards there's an uh, autopsy of their body and their entire uh, frontal cortex is basically shrunk to nothing to the point where they probably weren't people anymore. They had been reduced to automatons that just do whatever the ring earring tells them to and says whatever the earring says and they're happy, but they're not people anymore because if you're always doing the most optimal thing, you don't really have a choice. Part of choice is sometimes choosing to do the suboptimal thing. I I know what there's you mean. There's only ever one optimal option, right? Right. And there's there's not a lot of you know freedom here. I, I think we need to kind of just totally table uh like whatever, capital F free will. Um, right. Because that, that's that's the whole own side thing. But yeah, you know, if the problem is like you keep leaning on this and it keeps working out mm-hmm. and then it's like, well, you know, I'm happy with this. And if, you know, but then it's like, well, I'm, there's all, it's kind of, I was going to say, it's kind of like, you know, sometimes, sometimes fun to watch a shitty movie that you you're like, oh, I thought this would be better, you know? Mm-hmm. But if that actually is good for me, the earring will tell me to do that. Um, so yeah. it, it's a, uh, it's a trade-off, you know, it's like uh, the Felix Felicius potion. Um, right. You know, you wouldn't want to live your life on that. I remember, I think that was like, there was one sentence dedicated to that in the books about like why people just didn't, didn't do that all the time. And like oh, one of the side effects of repeated use was uh, recklessness. 
Mm. And it's like, well, of course, because you're you've got plot armor now. Yeah, it's like, always going to work out. Yeah, so of course you're reckless. You're going to be fine. But maybe maybe during the lulls in its effectiveness, they just you know take a stray bullet and die or something, right? So <laughs> right. Mm. Yeah, I I enjoyed this interpretation of free will at the very least. It, it's thought provoking. Um, I I think I could dig into it more, but I think I've said enough to satiate me for now. So maybe okay. I, I bet it'll come back up. Yeah. Uh. Well, she, when seeing his thought process going the way it does, becomes in, uh, impatient to die and go <laughs> to hell <laughs> because uh, she's known that she, she knows that she's going to go to hell when she dies and become perfect. So that the fact that she phrases it in the term of become perfect and now she's impatient for it because she sees him being like a reflection in a scanner darkly as to what she can someday become. Uh, I think that points out, first of all, she is a true believer in her religion, which I find delicious. And also she's annoyed that Keltham is better at it than her, despite not being of her religion. She calls him nearly perfect, more so than she thought any human could be. Mm-hmm. And I, is it fair to call her a true believer? Like they're gods, you know, people see them, you know, like they, there's there's clerics, there's magic. It, it's kind, I mean, it's kind of just in, like, you know, uh, yeah. Imp- I'm trying to think, you know, am I a true believer in, I was going to say, you know, crowd preservation or something, but yeah, I believe it's a thing. I don't know if it works. Um, I meant it in the sense of thinks it's a good thing. Like some people are true believers in democracy where in in one sense we all are because we see that <laughs> there is this governmental system. We, we aren't denying that it exists, but there, there's people who think it's just the best thing and there's no downsides and so on and so forth, which is what I meant by true belief. Oh yeah. Okay. Perfect. Then yeah, hundred percent. And and per that interpretation, I'm 100% looking forward to Keltham optimizing this world. <laughs> These people are in a fucked situation. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, God, I can't wait till I die and I can be made, you know, I can, I can, my mind can be broken down and shaved and I can be made perfect. That The fact that she's looking forward to that earnestly is horrifying. Mm-hmm. Right? It is. She wants to not become a human anymore. Oof. And thinks it's a great thing. Yeah. And uh, she, so she's pro soul modification. Interesting. That's a good point. I guess anyone who's looking forward to the afterlife would have to be. I think, I think, right. And, you know, to be fair, this is a, you know, a uh, uh, good natured nut or, uh, you know, uh, ribbing at you. I'm not, I, I don't yeah, I'm, I'm glad to have Chris on my side. She's probably the hotter one. Well, I think that, but I mean, she's also the delusional moron who can't wait to be lobotomized. Right? Oh, shit. Okay. Like, so, so I was, I was, I gonna guess say looks that, aren't everything. <laughs> she, what, what I was going to say is that, uh, the cases in this that I've, I've related to soul modification from uh, worth the candle are totally different. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, in soul modification, it's like, you know what? I don't want to be addicted to cigarettes anymore. Boom. You're not right. Uh, yeah. it, it can be a lot safer. Yes. This, this is in both cases that it's brought up here is much more dramatic. Yeah. They, I mean, they aren't totally different, but they're definitely different in degree. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So she's reading his mind. She's getting a ton of information out of him. She even sees that his intelligence is 18 or 19. Which is really cool. She, This is, I don't know. It, it's neat that, and he doesn't realize that she's getting all this information. So just a sudden lopsided transfer of knowing stuff about each other is cool. Remind me, uh, D&D, your level can go up to 20, but you can, can your skills go up to 100? Uh, or this, so is a, intelligence, this is an attribute, right? Yes, intelligence is an attribute. And the attributes are on a scale of 3 to 18, uh, naturally, because they are 3d6. So the lowest you can get is 3, and the highest you can get is 18. Uh, the only way you can get above an 18 would be through 
like racial modifiers when you're literally superhuman because you aren't a human or uh magic items things that uh that'll boost you yeah or like a permanent buff you got from rescuing a god or something okay yeah yeah so i thought when i first read this that it was 18 out of 100 which is still impressive if the god if gods are 100 right oh um, okay but then i was like wait this is D rules not not like skyrim rules um yeah. I so th- it's 18 or 19 out of 18. <laughs> it's very high. So if it's out of 18, that actually does make sense with the, with the number that we get further in the reading. Um, then, yeah, okay, I'm going to go ahead and say that he is in the, uh, what number did I find here at the down the road? Uh, top uh, 0.00315% of people. Sounds reasonable. Yeah. Okay, so he, he's, he's rocking uh, near his int cap already, and he's not even... Uh, oh, cracked a book on this planet yet? So, yeah. Carissa later on says that there'd be a maybe a classroom full of children uh, of his intellect in the entire world. So, I guess within one or two years of his age, there's no more than what twenty to thirty people of that intellect. And they have like ten billion people here. Uh, I thought it was one billion. That was on uh, Dothalon. I think it was the same for both planets, which Uh-oh. was. Um, the, how I realized that Dothalon had one billion because he was like, "Yeah, that's about how much we got on our planet too." Oh, okay, I must be misremembering. Um, yeah, I guess the classroom. Uh, I mean, if they found everybody, oh yeah, because you can just walk around and look at people's int scores. They'll they'll just like you know find them in classrooms. You know, they'll probably have people touring schools all over the world and be like, "Oh, you're too genius. You need to come with us to our special school for smart kids." Yeah. Okay. It'd be really cool. Um. Okay, so then he starts thinking about the kind of god that he wants to summon. And we basically get, it starts out introducing this concept of intrinsic characteristic boundary edge. And it's a lot of reading, but he's basically describing median worlds. Uh, like Dathalon is a median Eliezer Yudkowsky world. And it, it even talks about the cool um, real life process of all the glowfic writers and other people in that uh, creative community being like, oh, this median world thing is awesome and everybody makes their own median world, which uh, is a thing that uh, Miranda had had said to me is uh, happened in Glowfic. And I I kind of wish that Keltham would have just have explained it simply, like Miranda explained it to us. Um, but I realize that's not how Keltham thinks. And he has to put it this way for us to see how he thinks and get a feeling of his characterization. But, but man, my brain only has so many grooves in it. And... <laughs> I may have been very confused if I didn't know about median worlds beforehand. Yeah, I feel pretty smooth-brained uh, reading uh, sometimes large chunks of this story so far. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we got to ask Miranda, like, what's Glowfic? And she gave us an answer that made sense because we got to ask the question and we had some vague idea of what it was. He's, like, starting from first principles and not using the word Glowfic. And so it's it, it does come off as, as confusing. And I basically had the same notes that you did. Um, okay. At first, I was like, yeah, "Oh, but- he's describing, you know, like fan fiction." Oh no, wait, it's like it's like Glowfic. I'm like, "Oh wait, he just said, okay, got it." Uh, yeah. But you know, it it was fun, and it I would be curious if someone who didn't get the primer, you know, that that we did, read that and understood that they were talking about this kind of story. Probably not, because if you're just grabbing this out of nowhere, which no one is, I guess, um, mm. you wouldn't know that that's a popular thing in Glowfic, right? I mean, I got to it eventually. Like, at some point, he even started calling it the Kelthamverse, which, at that point, you're just flat out spelling and saying in easy, simple to understand words what you mean. And it was much easier to grasp. I just had to plow through several paragraphs of dense 
intrinsic characteristic boundary edge explanation <laughs> <laughs> before I got to Keltham verse. Or I'm like, you could have you could have just led with Keltham verse, man. That's only three syllables in baseline. <laughs> That's a good point. Speaking of all this, he does mention it's just easier to write about characters that are like you. The further you go from that, it says, the more likely you are to stumble and turn the character into a distant other who is not really animated by any inward spark that reflects and optimizes the same way you do. The more likely you are to stumble and try to construct something alien to yourself based on a psychological theory that is false. I think this is actually a perfect way of encapsulating why so much message fic is bad. And so I think I'm going to keep this on hand somewhere so I can paste some when someone says, like, what's wrong with message fic? Like... The thing is, I I do like a lot of message fic. It is almost my preferred style of fiction, as long as it's done good. But it's often very hard to do good, specifically because of this thing right here. If you're trying to write someone you disagree with, they end up a caricature straw man rather than a real person. What's message fic? Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I guess it's not a technical term, but it's the term that is used among the nerd reading too much stuff community. You can, say, you when, can say writers and avid well, but readers. It's, it, but it's not just writers. Okay, yeah. Writers and avid readers then. In fact, just avid readers in general, because I don't think you can be a writer without being an avid reader. Um, among avid readers, it's a thing where you author tracked, I think, is another way to put it. Someone trying to say, like, this thing is bad and here's the reasons why. There's a lot of things along the lines of, uh, actually, isn't racism terrible or global warming? This thing is going to kill us all. Like things that's trying to get across a message, usually an ideological or political message, rather than something that's trying to tell a good story with living characters. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, so I think, you know, having read almost 10 books in my life that, uh, <laughs> that most, most fiction is message fiction, but it's, it's the message part is buried underneath like a story with characters and a plot yeah. rather than just yes. being like super unnuancedly in your face. Yeah. Yeah. Like the movie, um, don't look up. Oh God. But I did it. Like, was... I did it in a self-aware way. I think I don't think that they thought they were writing like this original nuanced deep piece. Right. I don't know. I sure I don't hope that they knew that, was... that movie. I sure hope yeah. that they, that they knew that they're writing something that was satirical and, vaguely sad because it is only a little satirical uh, <laughs> okay but may maybe they thought that you know oh genius best story ever written i don't think that they i don't think they wrote a story right they they wrote a, a satire yeah i mean it had a lot of good parts in it uh a lot of it was saved by dicaprio's acting he was just so good in it and also what was the other jennifer lawrence also fantastic but overall it just I don't know. This isn't the deconstruction of Don't Look no, Up. No, no, yeah. I was, I, I was nonplussed by it overall. I saw it once and forgot about it, and I don't necessarily really recommend it. But it, I think it was, it's very obvious message fake. Yeah. Yeah. It had some great comedy beats in it. Yeah. You could, if you can hear the beats under the with the ham fists of how heavy the, the message that they're throwing at you is. But uh, right. again, this isn't that. We're talking about the real meat of world building. The real meat of world building, as with so many other things, <laughs> tests one's explicit understanding of economics. And this made me laugh because it just, I mean, it's straight up true, right? The reason the world is the way it is, is in large part due to material considerations. And the study of how material considerations affect what humans do is just econ. And I was reminded immediately that a lot of Worth the Candle was that same thing where he's like why are people still taking trains and then there was this long digression as to why and that that made for cool world building and there's like an actual answer 
Yes. And so that is the real meat of world building is like, it has to be able to explain why things are the way they are. Why, yeah. why is there a, a snitch in Quidditch? Um, yes. <laughs> so yeah, no, I love it. Very, very briefly. There's a spell in Skyrim called transmute ore, and it's a low level alteration spell. And you can turn iron ore into silver ore and then silver ore into gold ore. And this is because that stuff sells for more and you, you know, ore isn't that common, uh, but you can craft it into more expensive stuff. And it's just like, you know, to train your alteration. Mm-hmm. The thing is their economy runs on gold coins <laughs> and, cool. and no one acts like, you know, you can just, you know, shit out gold coins whenever you want. Like mm-hmm. th- this, this would ruin that, that economy. So clearly they just had this idea for a spell, threw it in there and didn't think about its impact. Yeah. It was not world built. It was just a, an afterthought. They should have had a rationalist looking over their stuff before they published it. It'd be fun. Maybe, uh, you know, Elder Scrolls six is taking, uh, we're coming up on 13 years. Maybe it's taking that long because they're mm-hmm. actually, you know, thinking through this, the, the world, who knows? Well, it also leaves a lot of room for rationalist fanfic. Yeah. Totally. That's where we, yeah, that's where we get things like uh, Gringotts will go to war with anybody who starts making transmute gold spells. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so, Keltham is thinking about uh, being in Dothalon and how they did not want more people like him in it. And uh, he says, you know what? I- I'm not going to think that way it's painful it's shooting uh there's no reason for it uh there's no reason to contrast reality to its alternative and make himself sad and this is one of those situations where i i know this happened to you a few times in worth the candle where you pulled something and commented on it immediately and i just pulled this out and i was like i am feeling a lot of sympathy for him because like he's an outsider in dothalon he's lonely he's like in a world of median yuds, a world of nerds, Keltham is a lonely ultra nerd. <laughs> and, and I guess it makes sense to return back to write what you know if you're Eliezer. You're like, well, I know about being a nerd in a world. So like Keltham has to be a, the nerd in Dothalon, the, the outsider. But like I, I, I was just thinking no matter what, that's kind of his personality. He is the outsider and he'd find a way to do that. And then, like, uh, the next paragraph, he says, maybe a Keltham is a person who needs to feel unbelonging over something, and his neurotype would find some other oddity of himself to obsess over instead. I was like, ah, damn it, he beat me to it. Well, you know, maybe. I, you used a word uh, that he used, should-ing. It's, it's hyphening should and, like, uh, verbing it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, my therapist that I was seeing for a while, um, if I use the words should, she would point it out after. And I liked that. And this, this is a valuable exercise. What he says is, you know, there's no reason to think about uh, things that way to contrast reality with alternatives and make yourself sad. Mm -hmm. Like it's really, really easy to be like, man, if only I had bought Bitcoin, you know? Right. But don't burn fuel thinking that because you didn't, Mm -hmm. you know, try to buy Bitcoin or the equivalent decision of that today. Uh, And, you know, who knows if you, it may be all the time that you spent, you know, fantasizing about how how you'd spend your millions if you bought Bitcoin in whatever two thousand nine, um, then you know you you'd find the next opportunity that you can grab now. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's that's something I've been trying to do, and I think it's turned my mood around the last few months by like actively. That's a good way to put it. You know, don't don't burn fuel contrasting reality to its alternatives. It's certainly the past. Yeah. You know, compare futures and then aim for one, but don't sit there and be like, I just wish this had gone differently, and burn a ton of time doing that. So. It's really hard not right. to do that sometimes, but it definitely can be. Oh yeah. I think I think I'm better at not doing that now, but that's also come with 
not remembering the past as well. And now I'm like, is that because I'm getting older and my brain is decaying? Or is that partly due to the fact that I'm just like letting things go? And so they don't make nearly as much of an impact in my brain. And it's probably both. Maybe both, but it's the second is definitely a factor. You know, you're not just like forgetting it, you know, dementia style, right? Well, I mean, some things I am just forgetting in in ways that I think I probably shouldn't just be forgetting things. Oh, I've been doing that my whole life. I just can't remember any examples. But <laughs> okay, uh, well, obviously, because if you could, then <laughs> exactly. Uh, if you're not rehearsing the the painful memory over and over, then yeah, it's just going to slip away, and then you'll be like, oh, you know, it's been months since I thought about this sad thing, and I remember it less vividly. That's because you're not repeating it all the time, which I think is good. Another good thing that he does is uh, the thing I just said, that Keltham is a person who needs to feel unbelonging, and that was my immediate impression. He says, well, his self-model does not actually say that this is how a Keltham works. Mm. The alternative of like you know thinking that that is how a Keltham works is a kind of inescapable madness and helplessness, and he's not into that. So he's just like, you know what? I don't think that's how I work, so I just reject that, and I'm going to keep going forward. I was like, oh, that is amazing and that is a cool skill I, I like that he did that yeah well and the other cool skill like you put in the notes just like i did with alexander all the time was like you know you retroactively read my thoughts yeah uh yeah eliezer heard your objection and refuted it before you got there i he's really good at that kind of thing yeah but no i like that you know it's like yeah you know what i'm not going to be that guy because that's not that that just straight up doesn't work and it's mm-hmm. also just not who i really feel like i am Mm-hmm. yeah he's he's becoming more of a person i like it yeah and then every time he's a person it's like he, you're like reminded that he's an alien and it's great yes <laughs> like when he says when he's comparing uh keltham verse to dothalon and he says like a lot of what makes a highest tech society like dothalon actually work is that the people inside it have truly altruistic components to their utility function and he he, he ruminates on that quite a bit um i just wanted to pull that out because basically that is the viewpoint that ultimately people are good the idea that people have truly altruistic components in, inside their utility function. And that makes me feel really great about Dathalon. Me too. Well, and this is true of our society as well. You know, it yeah. probably to a lesser extent, but yeah, I agreed. And I pulled up the same thing. They're like, hell yeah, people are mostly nice. Uh, mm-hmm. He goes on to say that most people are not just being cooperative for instrumental reasons. That most people won't commit crimes even when they're pretty sure they won't get caught. The number of tiny opportunities for defecting and getting away with it every day is too large to make it work. If people don't actually care about other people by it, mm-hmm. he means like society. Yeah. You know, like we, we could all, you know, there, there's a hundred opportunities, you know, on your way to work to be, you know, a, a selfish asshole. Right. Yeah. But not everyone's doing that because most of us are, you know, realize as George Cassandra would say, we're living in a society mm-hmm. and uh, we like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is part of the, the philosophy of Dathalon is that if people don't have that, altruism in their utility function then it would just be there wouldn't be any factories it just degenerate into individuals roving looting each other and so keltham says that he was honestly shaken when he heard that the neutral evil afterlife was eating souls (laughs) and that 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 basically yeah just the idea you don't have altruism and utility functions so it's just people roving around looting each other literally eating souls that was an awesome revelation. And that was so well done that when I read that, I stopped and I went to go look up to see if Abaddon really does eat souls in Pathfinder. Uh, Cause I was like, this is 
this is too perfect. This it's like it, Abaddon was set up specifically to shake Keltham's <laughs> beliefs. Uh, and I looked it up, and yeah, actually, Abaddon does have that. It is canon that uh, it eats souls in the Pathfinder universe. So that is some impressively great integration uh, between Glowfic and Pathfinder. Uh, great job, guys, Eliezer and Kelsey, for putting that together. Nice. Yeah, I, I was feeling a little smooth-brained when I was reading parts of this, I remember, because I remember being confused about, is eating eating souls... I guess that's a bad thing, but in a, in a universe where your soul goes to wherever and gets molded to be the slave of whoever gets it, like mm-hmm. that's not all that bad, right? I I don't know. I I agree with you. They feel like the same thing to me, but apparently the people of Pathfinder think differently. And if nothing else, Keltham probably figures there's some way to make the souls not get turned into utility maximizers for their god. Yeah, no, I I, I agree. It's just kind of funny to think about. Yeah. Uh, Abaddon's also a biblical figure, uh, nice. which you might remember. I remembered the name. Like, almost, almost all these names are taken from some sort of uh, mythology or afterlife, but I, I couldn't place it. I was just like, yeah, that sounds familiar. I just, I mainly remembered it because Abaddon was, I think, a knight of hell in Supernatural, or at least uh, mentioned. Okay. And mm-hmm. so I, I checked really quick, and it was a place of chaos and destruction in the Old Testament and an angel of destruction in the in the sequel. Ah, neat. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, the natural evil being is just eating souls. Yeah, that shook him. Because if that's where being a little more selfish leads in the end, then Dothalon is right. Mm-hmm. And then I make that gesture for thing coming from place A to place B. And mm-hmm. I'm not convinced that Keltham's idea of selfishness and Carissa's line up. Yeah. And later he concludes the same thing. So, uh, yeah, you know, props. You, Yeah, you are as smart as uh, as Keltham again. Well, I, I get I get the benefit of you know, seeing both their minds, right? Uh, I suppose so, yeah. But yeah, th- like they're clearly, and as we talked about last week, they don't have a word for anti- anti-social self-interest or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So that that's the, that's that's evil. And he keeps mm-hmm. using the word evil. And that word doesn't mean what I think he thinks it means. Uh, Apparently not. Uh, because uh, as he keeps thinking about his Keltum verse and coming up with like the kind of God that would rule this place that would be ideal for him, that he would be happy to worship. And he's thinking like, okay, is there, is there a chaotic evil God like this? If there is, I want to reach out to him. And then we get uh, from Kelsey, a, a point of view uh, thread from Abadar that says there is not a chaotic evil God like that because Keltum was somewhat misinformed about chaos and also about evil. There is, as it happens, a God like that. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. We're about to see the God and it's going to be so cool. It was dramatic. And it's like this kind of, you know, zoomed out third person perspective. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you get uh, Abadar, right? Uh, Yes, Abadar. It's it's confusing because uh, Asmodeus. It's so close to Abaddon. Right. And Asmodeus is uh, um, really close to Asmodean. And the church is Asmodian, and Asmodian is a is a, in addition to other stuff, I think is also a character in Wheel of Time. Um, I'm almost positive Asmodius is also a biblical angel. I believe demon? you're right. Okay, uh, but yeah, so it's like it, it, it tripping me up sometimes. But uh, yeah, the so you said Poggers. <laughs> I did say Poggers in the notes. Yeah. What what is Poggers? Poggers, gosh, I don't know where Poggers comes from, but when I think of Poggers, I think of a particular face that was made by uh, 
God, I don't even remember where it was. It was some kind of live Twitch stream. Some uh, popular gamer uh, had something happen. And he just made this face of like joy and surprise and like, oh, this is the greatest thing. And that became the Poggers face. And I don't know the story behind it, but I I had that feeling. Let's see. Oh, okay. I just Googled it. And half of the results are Pepe the Frog mimicking this guy's face. Okay. All right. Well, okay, so so that's that's your your that's internet speak for you're stoked. Yes, <laughs> right on. Yeah. Uh, I noticed when you get these god points of view that uh, Eliezer and Kelsey take turns, or not necessarily yeah. turns, but they don't like one doesn't own the character, mm-hmm. and that that's kind of fun. That was very interesting. Great co- collaborative st- uh, storytelling. This is a good time to ask a meta question, and I don't know if you know this, or I don't think it's spoiler if we ask and someone tells me did they collaborate on the basic plot of this or is this all being generated off the cuff for like the last years? I think one or the other pitched a general idea. Um, but I don't know that for sure. I, for some reason I get that impression and, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know the details. And so like, it's, it's not impossible that the reactions that like, uh, Keltham has to this new, you know, epiphany are, Eliezer's actual reactions to what you know just happened that is possible yeah huh i mean that's that's wild to think about um mm-hmm. it's it's just been it's in the background of like a lot of this but uh like it could literally be Eliezer being like well i'm gonna outline the kind of god that keltham would like and then i know that kelsey knows a lot about this world and she can tell me if there's a god like that or not and then kelsey confirms yep there's a god like that it's abadar and Eliezer's like, awesome. Now I know where to go forward, how to go forward with this. Love it. Yeah. Abadar, is, or wait, yes, is, uh, gosh, see, I get, because then they're talking, he's talking to Asmodeus and it's also an A. Sorry, I, I will mm. get better, especially if they're repeat characters. Um, but he's, he, he's giving this example of like, it's like everyone's a squirrel and they're like, you know, you relate to them the same way we relate to squirrels. And then one looks like basically right at him. And like in a way that no other squirrels looked at you before and is, you know, like super unsettling, then looks apart like mathy parts of you that it's not supposed to be aware of. Mm. And so it's, it's really cool. And uh, I think, yeah, earlier on, um, Keltham had the thought that like, maybe this is why they don't teach you here decision theory, because Mm -hmm. when you can really understand things, break them down the right way, you get to the like true core of reality. And I guess that's what gods are. Um, And he's, he's looking right at this thing and I think I also like how casually they talk. Like, yeah. I think he, I think Asmodeus even thinks like I could call up, uh, excuse me, Abaddon, Abadar, God actually thinks <laughs> I could call up Asmodeus. I think he uses the words mm-hmm. call up. Oh, cool. And it's just funny. Cause I, I missed that. Like, uh, it, it's almost like I could shoot him a text. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the, Oh, with the squirrel thing. So, uh, he notices that his immaterial soul is 93 minutes old. Mm-hmm. And, uh, You'd have to pay more attention to this sort of anomaly if the surprise had been properly scheduled, uh, like in other worlds you deal with. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So since prophecy was broken here several centuries back, I think it was. Yeah. Or a century back. Yeah. Whenever the world wound happened, I think it was a century or so. Okay. Wait, that doesn't sound right. That's 100 years. Same thing on uh, Dothalana with the history thing. We would have noticed that. Oh. Well, I can double check. But anyway, uh, I just like that. A, he was cursed in the mortal soul the moment he arrived here. And, yeah. uh, like just the, the idea of this, if this surprise been properly scheduled, like the God has a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. I like my surprises very well scheduled too. 
God, it's so annoying when your surprises aren't scheduled ahead of time. Yeah, come on. Yeah. So he he gets the squirrel looking at him and he's like, well, I kind of want to contact the squirrel, but it seems like the squirrel is maybe telling me not to contact him. And oh, look, he's right in the middle of an Asmodian church. So uh, he shoots Edmodius a text. He says, hey, Asmodeus, I want to reveal information relevant to negotiating a potential gainful trade where that information itself might otherwise worsen my negotiating position for the trade. And then does some, you know, standard conditions for can we have this trade that the whole text that he sent him was really delightful. And it's really cool that the gods can talk that way and meaningfully, transparently commit to this sort of thing. It it just filled me with sparklies to read that. Yeah, it was um like as close to like ideal communication as you can imagine or like at least mm-hmm. ideal negotiating mm-hmm. uh, i didn't put the quote in the show notes but asmodeus part of his reply is like he shows him the part of himself that like is his intention to follow through on the commitment yeah and it's like it's not even like i'm just saying trust me bro it's like look i'm actually going to do it it's negotiating at a whole new level i think Helton will thrive when he's talking to these to these guys absolutely these lawful deities are sweet yeah, this will be this will be really cool. Abadar contacts Asmodeus and says, "Look, this there's this uh, squirrel that I'm interested in, but he's in your territory, and you could totally squish him if you wanted to, and I don't want you to do that. So I want to uh, buy from you uh, avoidance of squishing this squirrel." The summary is like, "Don't fuck with this guy, please." The two major gods of this story, or what looked to be probably the two major gods of the story, just came to a deal about Keltham and how to not kill him. Don't torture him. Don't kill him. I want him free to talk about how awesome I, Abadar the God, am. This will probably cost me something. I'm willing to pay that. Fair enough. As soon as Asmodeus says, cool, I am willing to accept this deal, Abadar says, great, it's this mortal in this church at the World Wound. You can't miss him. And Asmodeus says, oh, okay, cool. That That is a weird looking squirrel. <laughs> then... The second plot point that we didn't touch on is immediately after this, Asmodeus gives a vision to a priest, I guess, which uh, gives the priest detailed instructions on what to do next with Keltham. And the thing that he is told to do next is, I don't know, we don't hear all of it, but at least one of those things is teleport him to this other city, this coastal city, and uh, put him up in this Archduke's castle. And so that is what they do. Just real quick, was that first one a joke that I just didn't get? Yes. Okay thinking to himself just kind of amusing himself um he probably i don't know i don't know if he would say it out loud all right for listeners what we're talking about yeah. is when he's offered water keldum says ah yes water i've heard of this <laughs> uh i it's what sane people ingest after heavy exercise a little beneath yeah. the dignity of someone who calls himself a mad investor but under the circumstances keldum will lower himself to briefly act like a sane person i now see how it's funny when he's talking to himself that way uh it yeah. just it whooshed past me this morning and I'm like, what who is he talking to and why? But no, he's just like, Oh yeah, I should be reasonable for one fucking minute, even though everything's crazy, mm-hmm. I still am tired from all that running and it's cold and I could use a drink. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like surprisingly mundane for everything that's happening to him. Yes. There were there were quite a number of comedic beats in the last uh last section of our reading here, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, same here. I, I call a couple of them. The mage shows up and like, hey, you want to teleport to this place with us? Trust me, it's going to be fine. <laughs> right. Um, yep. And so he, he's thinking and then articulating a lot about how that put him on edge. It's just funny because he was raised in a world where defection seems to be like mostly theoretical. Mm-hmm. But he's surprisingly good at being paranoid. Well, I want to I want to put this to you. If I invited you out to dinner to a restaurant, right? I said, hey, meet me at this and this place. You have my word. You're not going to get stabbed there. Hmm. Wouldn't that raise some questions to you? Yeah. You'd be like, uh, 
I'm sorry. Why is that disclaimer in? Is, is is this a thing you worry about often? Is there a risk I might be stabbed if you hadn't given me your word? What's going on? I know there's a TV trope page with this shirt on it, but I can't remember what the trope actually is. But the shirt is like, uh, like fuck trial or fuck human trafficking or something, or like I'm against or I'm not a human trafficker or something. Uh huh. Oh right. And it's like my shirt seems to be getting getting me a lot of questions that the shirt itself answers. <laughs> yes. But it's it's oddly specific, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, you know, on, as far as him being paranoid, though, and being good at it, maybe that's why maybe that paranoia is universal. And that's why uh, defection is so rare in Dathalon. I don't think it's the paranoia. I think it's an indication of like, because we expect by default not to get stabbed anywhere. So if someone says, I promise you won't get stabbed there, that raises questions to us as to why are you bringing up that specific thing? When he is told, I promise you'll be able to leave he's like what the fuck (laughs) i just assumed anywhere i go i could leave if i wanted to why are you promising me that i can leave in this specific case so it it seems to me more like datalon is the kind of place where everyone just always assumes you can leave if you want to well they they don't have a nation states you know Uh, yeah sounds like it and so i'm not sure where he's being teleported to or if it's different nation or whatever but like you know hey we're gonna cross a border and go somewhere else but you can come back if you want like it's probably the normal, normal thing to say here on earth right Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah it's like you, wait I you're assuring me that I won't be trapped makes me think I'm going to be trapped yeah yeah no I can totally dig it yep um, so they teleport to that new place with the mage and Carissa and then some other mage instead of uh, tongues it's like speak language or something mm-hmm. so now he's speaking in their language and I loved this this is part of that humor we were talking about speaking in a language or speaking a language suddenly is fairly distracting. All the words you know now map to the nearest available other words in the other language, which is not at all how people learn languages when they learn them. <laughs> that, I didn't that know that. That a mouthful. Um, it, see, I, I haven't really... Well, that's not true. I guess I learned English because I knew Polish first, but I don't remember learning English. Yeah. The few times I did try to learn like some words in French or Spanish, that is exactly how I learned them. I was like, this, this is the word for table. Well so but you're learning them one at a time he's saying that all the words you know now map to the nearest available words yeah so so it's 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 disjointing to be suddenly like oh i wanted to say this but i can only say this now Um, okay yeah yeah so it's it's different yeah because that's that is i think the only way to learn languages until like you're so fluent you can think in both of them intuitively or something but uh oh i see so he it swapped his language for this language it seems like it like I think I think he's okay. I think he still knows his language, but he's speaking theirs. Yeah, and so like uh, the analogy he gives is, uh, you know, it's like getting on an alligator and learning uh, learning that it rides exactly like the pony you grew up riding on. But this might not be a useful analogy if you haven't ridden, ridden any ponies or alligators. And <laughs> yeah. that's the kind of humor that totally vibes with me. Cool. Yeah. Uh, the uh, I loved this particular humor. Uh, the mage tells him, uh, basically, it's a level two spell. Uh, but instead of saying level two, it is in brackets, two word syllable for the complexity of the spell relative to other spells conveying its topology and the fact that the better half of wizards could cast it and that it uses about 60% as much energy as a basic teleport. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, that's, that is fantastic. And yes, level two is two syllables. So that is exactly what I expected. It's three syllables, but in English. Is it? 
level. Oh yeah, you're right. Level is two. Well, because I had the same thought this morning and then I was counting and I was like, wait a minute, why am I counting? Level is already two. But in whatever their language, you know, it's point is, yeah, he's gesturing at this part of the skill tree and it's like, this is where it is. And now you know what I mean. It's awesome. Oh, and then he tries to say thank you. The best. And he says, I reciprocate for your game theoretic. Oh my ass. Does this language really not have a less than tensible way to just say thank you? There it is. Thank you. <laughs> I love that uh, the struggle there because mm-hmm. th- thank you is a phrase that you say to someone who, like holds a door for you or something. Mm-hmm. And also what you say to someone who goes like on a Liam Neeson rampage to save you from certain <laughs> doom, right? Right. Yeah. And it's like, I feel like you've earned more syllables for the latter action. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, we just got the we got the one phrase. <laughs> that was great. Keltham's giving an example. He's talking to the mage. He says, this language isn't good at doing some things my world thinks a language should be good at. At some later point, you should try giving somebody else my language and test whether it makes them think better. Hmm. I'll be damned. That's not an amazing idea, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know how long it would take me to think of that, but way longer than 10 seconds. You're right. Like, I, I also would have thought of that, but probably not the very first thing I thought. Although he is experiencing a lot of frustration uh, immediately, which we are not experiencing. And maybe if we felt all that frustration, we could, would also think of it very quickly. Well, and, and he's experiencing like what it's like to think, to talk in their language. Like he, yeah, he, he's experiencing the, the, the jarringness and we're not. So I'm going to give us a pass. Okay. Yeah. Yes. We, we, we were further away from the situation, so it would have taken us longer. Yep. That is a good thought though, but it would make, they would make them much worse at certain things like making war, which is probably pretty important in their society. Yeah. But you know, tough. <laughs> Keltham learns that he is uh, considered a super genius in this world where he is only uh, less than one standard deviation above normal back in his world so he's saying whoa I I am living in a world where everyone is more than three standards of deviation dumber than my home world which by way of comparison like if we were transported to a world where literally the average person is the clinical definition of retarded and like the insane super geniuses of the world are just baseline human intelligent, what we consider baseline human intelligent. Like how would that world even run? It wouldn't have a lot of tech that we take for granted. You know, a couple thoughts on that. I think 3.2 standard deviations. My math isn't solid on standard deviations, but uh, two standard deviations to put your IQ at 70. If you're three, it's going to be well past that. For IQ, standard deviation is 15 IQ points, right? Yeah. So that puts you at 55 IQ? Yeah, but like the thing is, I don't know if you can meaning meaningfully measure IQ 55. Right. And okay, so, I see what you're saying. Yeah, so, so to that to that point, I suspect this might have something to do with his like mathy background. Maybe his being two hours old. Like maybe the way they calculate int is like based on how smart you are and how old you are. He comes from a world where the median person is Eliezer Yudkowsky. And I'm pretty sure Eliezer Yudkowsky is three standard deviations smarter than your baseline 100 IQ human, right? He's probably 140 plus IQ. Yeah, probably. Basically, uh, the Pathfinder world is just the standard world like we know it in terms of intelligence. It's just that the world Keltham comes from, the standard intelligence is Eliezer level. So that's where the standard deviations difference comes in. But A, Keltham, he's... Uh, four standard deviations above, whereas the average here is three standard deviations below, right? He's four standard deviations above the baseline Earthling. Because that puts him in, the, like I said, the top 0.00315% of people. Yes. Um, the people that he's talking to, though, don't seem like 
super handicapped. I assume most of the people he's talking to are close to as smart as he is. They are also genius level people. He just happens to run into a bunch of geniuses. I mean, I guess, you know, he ran into one who ran into a church, but like you're telling me everyone else is running around mouth breathing. Like the average is 55. No, the average is 100. The average is the same as earth. I'm definitely uh, losing IQ points as I try to explain this. <laughs> okay. Uh, he's shaken by the notion of a negative 3.2 standard deviation G for, I'm assuming G factor. So he's saying this is a world, oh, 3.2 less than his. Okay. Which would yeah, put yeah. them at ours. Well. We'd, we'd still have outliers like, you know, you and me who are definitely three standard deviations above. Oh, of course. The, <laughs> the bigliest brain for sure. I, 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 I was like just I, trying to think of like what it would be like to be in Keltum's position if we suddenly found ourselves in a world that was three standard deviations below the Earth we're used to. I think the closest we can approximate here on Earth, at least that comes to mind, is like imagine trying to coordinate like a real society with a room full of six-year-olds. I mean, I think we'd probably take over that society pretty quickly, which is uh, what I expect Keltum is now thinking too. Oh yeah, we would dominate, but also just think about like, you know, you're trying to explain problems to them and they just can't get it, you know, everything's too complicated because mm-hmm. uh, there's six. Yeah. I, I certainly hope, I don't know. I, I guess we'll see. I, I don't want to run around like with a character who is a thousand order or yeah, a thousand percent smarter than everyone else he's talking, than most people he talks to. Cause it's going to make him like not able to relate to anybody. Like he'll find I the mean, other out, like the other outstanding outliers that he's still way smarter than. I, I think he's basically in the same position as Harry Potter here, where the world is your baseline humans and he is very much smarter. But I don't know if he was like, and I don't want to get hung up necessarily on the exact math of it, but I don't know if he was that much smarter than everybody else. Uh, he wasn't that much smarter than everyone else in on Dothalon. No, or I mean, we Harry, about Harry Potter. Yeah. Oh, Harry. I, I got the impression that Harry was being modeled somewhat after Eliezer's own childhood. So I assumed he was also three standard deviations above a, uh, a seven-year-old boy or however old Harry was in the books. As he put it, when we had our uh, wrap-up episode for that show, that was uh, Harry was him as a as a youth with his intelligence and wisdom scores reversed. Yes, that's right. Uh, all right. Well, I guess we'll see. I'm, I, you know, people like this. Yukowski is a good writer. Uh, Kelsey's knocking it out of the park so far, so this will probably be good. But I don't find that idea appealing whatsoever. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh yes, I'm going to walk through and I'm going to be the super super genius who's so much smarter than all these morons that they can't even understand my plans. But that sounds like crap when I when I say it. It's I suspect it'll probably turn out well. So, I mean, I suspect you'll be mostly interacting with the super geniuses of this society, like the uh, the high priests, and honestly, probably dealing with the gods a lot, which I expect will be smarter than he is. Yeah. Okay. We'll see how it goes. That's true. Yeah. We still early days yet for us. Yes. Uh, he. This is just the thing I pointed out because it made me feel the big oof. Dathalon isn't going to fling its children out into the world with no concept of how to find, explore, build, or maintain a romantic relationship. Just like, yet one more way Dathalon is so much better than Earth and <laughs> makes me wish I, I was living there. We have rom-coms, Inyash. <laughs> oh, my bad. The foundation for every healthy relationship is a misunderstanding that could be cleared up with two sentences that leads to a years-long feud and confusion. But also lots of lulls along the way. That's right. The, yeah. the the real romantic love is the laughs you have along the way to not finding romantic love. Yes. Yep. Uh, they talk about names and how in Dothalon they're all two syllables. <laughs> and she names off one of their high priests, which has a seven syllable name. And she says, ah, and uh, Keldum says, ha, 
I'm evil, but I'm never going to be evil enough to wantonly make people memorize seven syllables just to say hi to, which I then commented with Eliezer Yudkowsky. Which was brilliant. I didn't put that together uh, until you wrote it out and I counted and like, oh, of course. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was a lot really of good comedy beats. Yeah. Yep. I, it's, you know, again, like I think we talked about last week, you got, you got to just push past the fact that like, you know, there's not, there's still not like any like, I mean, I guess he's doing it the reasonable way. You know, he's, he's crazy smart. I'm going to have a hard time relating to that, but like a little hand wringing about how weird this all is would be, you know, relatable. Um, mm-hmm. But he kind of just bulldozered through that. Um, so the, uh, what I'm trying to say, um, I got distracted looking for a quote from the book and saw that he has point zero, he has point eight, uh, standard, standard deviations above the average, uh, Dothalanian, mm-hmm. which, you know, isn't a lot, but it does put him in like the upper third. Um, okay. So sorry for the disjointed thought there. We were talking about, oh yeah, the syllables. Yeah. I think, the, I think the, the wizard had a shorter, yeah, I, I, I fucked all that up. Sorry. Oh, it's all good. <clears throat> I'm doing uh, better than I thought I could with uh, the rest I got, but that I seem like I have that excuse every month, and that's no good. So it's all good. Uh, oh, speaking uh, just just out of random, out of nowhere, uh, I believe the word that we couldn't pronounce last time was isekai. And did you get a chance to see the isekai anime survival guide? Shit. No, I have the tab open though. Still. Oh, it's hilarious. I, I'm going to po- uh, post it in our show notes for this episode. Okay, great. I will watch it. Cool. Okay, so uh, Keltham is realizing that maybe Carissa Sever is, or Savar, not sure, is flirting with him. And so he tries to flirt back. And then he says, on reflection, he should hesitate to flirt any further than this before he actually, uh, before he has actually thought at all about Carissa slash Sever. And that kind of confused me. Like, what? Why would he hesitate to flirt further? Because flirting is harmless. I mean, in part precisely because of the deniability thing he was just talking about, right? Uh, before I answer that, like, any, I'm going to point out reason... that... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I, well, I was going to say, is there ever any reason not to flirt? But go ahead, you were pointing out? Uh, that Carissa Savar is five syllables. So I guess that's why she just goes by Carissa. But, uh, you know, five yeah. and seven is not that big of a jump. They, but anyway, they talk, he talked about how, you know, everyone on Dothalon has like two because it's easiest. Um, so is flirting always harmless? I mean... I think misdirected flirting is unwelcome. You know, possible, possible deniability is like, you know, if the court reporter reads back what I said, you'll see that I never said that I was into her. Um, mm-hmm. but, yeah. but that's that's not how, you know, when someone's assessing the vibe, you know, the, the possible deniability isn't really a saying, right? Well, sure, but he's not saying like he should hesitate to flirt further until he can figure out if she's flirting with him. He's, he does think that she's flirting with him, but he has other reasons to maybe not want to flirt he i think one of it is that he suspects that he might be being flirted with but he's not sure and Mm. maybe what he's saying is you know before he's thought at all about carissa is that hold on if i successfully flirt then she'll want to be into me and do i want that yes well but maybe maybe (laughs) he he hasn't interviewed a second secretary yet right i I mean that's the thing she might be among the worst the world has to offer that's the wonderful thing about flirting. You don't ever have to stop. Like you can flirt with everyone you meet and it's fine. It's not like the secretary problem where you have to stop flirting with anyone else once you've decided to flirt with Carissa. No, but I think that like if if he successfully, uh, if, the, if, if it went on long enough, then she uh-huh. would be like, oh, we should be romantic now. And then it would be like, you know, he's clearly not uh, monogamous, but it would still, it would be like a, a dynamic change to this relationship. And he's like, do I, do I really want my like tour guide slash translator 
to be like into me. Uh, I suppose the awkwardness of being like, oh, no, thank you kind of thing might be bad. Yeah, sorry. I was just leading you on. Oh, I don't know. You can always just say, well, I, I can see how that could be potentially awkward. Yes, I, I, I like to personally just be like, oh, I just flirt with everyone. It, it's cool. Hope you don't mind kind of thing. But um, yeah, I, I'm sure not everyone would be quite that same way. He needs to give it some thought. He says he hasn't actually thought at all about about her yet. So he needs to give it at least 30 seconds, you know, or maybe maybe three in Keltham speed uh, seconds of thought to be like, is this, you know, a safe adventure? Yeah. Okay. fair enough. Fair enough. And also, who knows? Maybe in their society, flirting is like a marriage proposal or something. And he should make sure it's not before he does that. Yeah, it seems it seems wise to like just slow down for a second and, you know, just get your bearings on the planet you're on, right? Yeah. He doesn't want to get shotgun wedded to this girl, you know, the first girl that he winked at, you know? Right, right. Once we kiss, we're married forever. Yeah, exactly. Maybe there's some actual magic involved, right? It would be such a weird world if just flirting with someone had that big of a, of a connotation to it. Cause like, again, like you said, the, the sort of deniability part is part of flirting. I mean, it's also a weird world where, you know, a God talks to a priest who says, get this guy and you teleport it to another planet or to another part of the planet. So yeah. Okay. I mean, all right, sure. Yeah. There's you, that. You, you got to play it safe, man. You don't know what's <laughs> okay. up. That's true. He's going to grab a history Speaking... book or ro- a romance book and a math book and sit down and have his evening. Yeah. Speaking of uh, having to play it safe because not knowing what's up, <laughs> he is told that uh, some people drink things out of the skulls of their enemies. And he's like, the skulls of his, oh, they can resurrect people. Right. It just costs money. That must sure make for some weird social dynamics, which first of all, wow. Yeah. Knowing that you could be, if you're friends with a rich person, they could resurrect you if you die. That strong motivation to get in really good with rich people and or become extremely rich yourself but also i would not have thought of that so again keltham smarts interesting uh he he has this damn good point that holding the skulls of your enemies denies them resurrection and is just the most chad power move ever and also i'm assuming if you have their skulls, but you haven't destroyed their skulls, that means there's still a potential for resurrection. So it also shows I feel so secure in my power that I'm sure you will not take the skull away from me and resurrect my enemy kind of thing. Well, I, and I mean, what you could even do is kill your enemy, resurrect them. Oh, wait, if you do a resurrection, does it summon a new body for them? I would assume their old body gets resurrected. That's generally how it happens in um, D&D. You have to haul the bodies of your dead party members out of the dungeon with you. I remember that's why if everybody dies on a dungeon, it's a total party kill because you can't resurrect anyone. That's right. I guess I I had the idea that if your body was annihilated, you could still be resurrected. Um, Generally not. But that makes sense. Okay. So then, yeah, that would be a different signal. I was thinking that like if, if your body could be annihilated and still be resurrected, you know, you get conjured a new meat suit or whatever, then you could kill a kill a, an enemy and then resurrect them and show them their skull and like while you're drinking out of it negotiating the dinner again right <laughs> oh, shit or you go that you would go be awesome too you go full voldemort with it and you're drinking out of you know their wife and kids skull of your political enemy oh my god and you're yeah. like yeah next time I, I might not bring them back you know mm-hmm. but yeah it, so you know this is like lucius malfoy you know sitting down to negotiate with somebody and on his way there he captures and kills that guy's kid and then he's got the kid's skull at the negotiation. He's like, you know, I sure hope things go my way. Um, yeah. Because I, I can turn this back. And, oh, wait, no, I can't because it's the skull in this world. 
you need the you need the the assembled body. Okay, fair enough. I mean, you can get healing, but I guess healing has limits. I wonder how much the body you need. I would assume probably fifty one percent, just because that's easiest from a game rules perspective. Not like Wolverine, where he can be regenerated from a single cell, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, that's just ridiculous. Yeah, I think uh, there's got to be. Well, there are definitely hard limits on it, and some of that will be related to the economy of the world, which uh, we'll no doubt get an expla- explanation of. So, I hope so. How many times do you think Keltham uh, is going to be resurrected before the end of the story? Oh, see, I I hadn't even thought of that. My so I guess my implicit assumption was zero. He's just not going to die. But now that you mention it. Yeah, he's probably going to need to get resurrected quite a few times, isn't he? I mean, I just had the thought the second I verbalized it. So, you know. Uh, I'm going to go with 666 for symbolical reasons. Solid. I should just say 420. Um, <laughs> nice. Like, um, I think unless we get like a montage where he dies a bunch. Um, mm-hmm. I, I yeah, bet it's not going to be that much. It's going to be two, maybe three. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, so. All righty. Our target phrase to stop for the next section is, and once again, thanks to Ask Who and all the people in the spoilers channel who pull this together for us every week. Our target phrase to stop at for the next section is, her door is ajar and she's dressed, bathed, is reading a book. Rawr. Sick. Although the rawr's not in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you again to, uh, um, sorry, who? I'm not doing Ask the bit. Who. Ask Who. Um <laughs> And uh, yeah, I because this was a great stopping point. I was like, you know, finally I got past all the parts where I was feeling smooth brained and like just normal human stuff was happening. Mm. And again, it was a scene change uh, time, you know, a good time for it. But I was like, oh, kind of like a cliffhanger. I had to like stop, you know, I was on a roll. So no, you're you're nailing it. Uh, I don't want to say make us suffer, but this is your chance. So Stephen, thank you for joining me again. Let's uh, keep on reading. Likewise. Uh, Thanks again. You know, and this is, uh, I would, fuck, sorry. (laughs) Start over.